person is that how you're gonna is that how i should put you on the poster andrew the best person jack we don't have the curmudgeon well well maybe someday we'll have a poster you (laughs) are the curmudgeon you're the oldest by by a little bit yep Um, you're the oldest you'll die before i will we'll see about that (laughs) all right and welcome everybody to the wages of cinema podcast i am jack and i am jack no, I'm Jack. <laughs> oh God! You know what the you know what sucks? Whenever I I think of that gag, I mean that's been done in like a Which lot of movies. Which one do I shoot? No, but I I think of the wor- I think of the worst example because it's just for some reason the loudness of it has been lodged in my brain. Um, I know you haven't seen the movie, but Michael Bay's The Island. Yeah. Now, without saying too much, there's I a remember scene when where... that came out. All right. Well, you remember when that came out? But there's a scene. Where there are two characters who are doing the, I'm this guy! No! I'm this guy! Shut up! Shut up! I'm this guy! And they're like, one of them gets shot, and it's like... And because of how Michael Bay shoots his movies, it's like, not only do I not know who who is the real one, I almost don't care. But it's kind of entertaining seeing this actor, who I won't spoil who it is, like, shouting this line. And... Yeah, among Michael Bay movies, that actually isn't one of the worst, so... Oh, uh, we, we've seen the worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, The Island actually is relatively, compared to other Michael Bay movies, it's a lot of fun. And someday we'll watch it, even though it's ridiculous and stupid and all these other things. Um, but I wanted to start off the day before uh, we get into uh, some of the nitty-gritty. I just saw an article that I thought was interesting to bring up uh, without getting too much into the issue full bore uh just today or maybe the past couple days um there's this excerpt of a new book that's coming out called i lost it at the video store which i I really want to read because it just sounds like an awesome oh yeah this is your thing well i don't know i mean it will just you know it looks like an interesting movie book it looks like looking at a era that's now technically bygone which you know happens a lot in the history of movies uh you know we don't really have video stores anymore uh nope. although although i should say that a friend of mine on facebook posted an article about and the title was 50 video stores that still exist or it was like 50 cool video stores that still exist and one of them is in new york city so i might go check that out but the point is quentin tarantino of course was interviewed for this book because he worked at a video store in the 80s Shock. Um, and I hope they interviewed Paul F. Tompkins to get his experiences working at the Beta Max video store Ooh, in Philadelphia. Is that something that's something he did? Yeah. It's something he talks about a lot in his stand up. Oh, cool. I, I will want to uh, I will want to check that out. The place was called Beta Only. <laughs> <laughs> and the way he puts it, it's like there there were there was a small group of people who believe that the world had clearly made the wrong decision when it came to the beta VHS wars, and they were just waiting for everyone to come to their senses. And the customer (laughs) list, you know, you had to have a membership, was eight people. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and on the day he got fired, he was. Yeah, they said, "Oh, you could leave now, or you could stay and finish your shift." And he's like, "Nope, I'm leaving now <laughs> because I don't want to wait for the rush to come around when Judy gets here." <laughs> I just picture that being like one of those sketches from like Sesame Street. That's like, I don't know why Sesame Street popped in my head, but I'm just thinking. Yeah, like, I don't know why Sesame Street popped into your head either, but I, let's go back to right. Quentin Tarantino. All right. I just picture Grover working at like a beta store. All right. Um, so Tarantino was interviewed for this book and um, he talked about uh, streaming services like Netflix and... He said that, you know, I'm not excited about streaming at all. I like something hard and tangible in my hand, all right? I can't, and I can't watch a movie on a laptop. I don't use Netflix at all. Which, you know, first of all, now, all right, that's his choice. He can not choose to not watch Netflix. But he he seems to be behind the times by about five years. Like, there was a time period where I didn't watch movies on Netflix either, streaming-wise, because I could only watch them on my computer. Like, I didn't have the HD TV yet. Right. But when I got my HDTV and my Blu-ray player, guess what? Now I can watch Netflix. And with the occasional hiccup in, you know, like when it buffers, it's awesome. Yeah, uh, I mean, so, it's convenient. You can't complain. Yeah. So I the, think Netflix has done more for television than it has for movies. I yeah. Mean, television has had the greatest impact with binge watching and uh just allowing you to remain in your uh, room and basically watch any season of any television show that happens to be on Netflix. Yeah, it's almost like an it's an embarrassment of riches. It's almost like it, it's completely made it where if, if if you have a TV show, it's almost like well, what is a pilot is the first episode that important? Like that used to be a big deal for TV shows. You had to make a really good pilot so that the rest of your show could be picked up and they make more shows. But the point is, though, he goes on to say, though, I don't have any sort of delivery system. I have the videos from video archives. They went out of business, and I bought their inventory. Probably close to 8,000 tapes and DVDs. <laughs> First of all, it's cool that you did that. Yes, Quentin it is. Good, good for you. You know what? That shows some passion. That shows that you... Uh... I don't think any of us ever thought that Quentin Tarantino had a lack of passion. But no, it's although I wonder a though very cool thing. Although to do. I wonder though what will happen to those tapes when he dies because he's not married and he has no kids. So is there, are they just going to go the landfill like so many videotapes are now? I wonder what I should do with my VHS tapes. Some of them I have are really necessary, but because I have like box sets of documentaries that are really expensive to yeah. rebuy, uh -huh. so it's impractical for me to get rid of them. And I still have a VCR, but there are other films that I have. That I just don't watch very much. I mean, yeah, I mean, and some uh, of it. I had to, to rewatch them because they were suggested for you, Pacific Heights and The Thing from Another World. Uh, I had those on VHS, but I don't really watch movies on VHS well, anymore, even though I have a few in my collection. Yeah, the funny thing is, although um, I still oh. will hold on to my copy of Crippled Masters. I have mine as well. Um, Has that come out on DVD? I don't know. It might not. It might no. justify having a VCR no, all by itself. Believe it or not, folks, and I hope you're holding on to your hats as I say this, um, and when a German person tells you to hold on to your hat, it's not a metaphor. Hat! Hold it! <laughs> it's a, that's a Muppet movie reference. Um, right. All right, so anyway, there are movies that you can't get on DVD. And not only that, they're also not available on streaming. 
some movies are starting to creep their way onto uh, studios have kind of archive collection things now, uh, and maybe Amazon Prime is getting a little better, but there there are still a number of movies yeah that you can't get on DVD. I mean, I uh, that was one of the cool things in in, in college. I remember uh, my friend Eric Lutz gave me this movie, which I have not seen anywhere else. It was on a VHS tape. It was called. The Beer Drinker's Guide to Fitness and Filmmaking. Wow. It's and that's a movie. It's not it's like That sounds like it should be a book. <laughs> yeah, it kind of should, shouldn't it? Uh, yeah, that and it was a, it was a movie. It was like a semi documentary fiction movie that I I'd, I'd have to look up my review of it because it's been so long since I watched it, but but that's one of those movies that you just can't get on there anymore. Um but what I wanted to get to though. Now, so Tarantino then says, I have a bunch of DVDs and a bunch of videos, and I still tape movies off of television on video so I can keep my collection going. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, huh, okay, I'm not sure I feel about that. I mean, I guess that's your prerogative, but you're also a super multi-millionaire who can easily afford DVR. Yeah, you can afford to do your crazy VHS thing. But no, I guess he can afford to do that too. He's just, you know, that's... Uh, from what I've read, like Kevin Smith wrote about going to Tarantino's house in uh, one of his books, and he said going there, it's a, a little bit akin to when you, when you see like Pee Wee's house in like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's right. like going into like a kid's house because he just has all sorts of collector's shit everywhere, and uh, and he has the the pussy wagon from Kill Bill parked in his driveway all the time, <laughs> which I think it, it's kind of cool. But you know, I just kind of wondered like. I don't know if I would still do that. I, I, I did. I was talking about you off the air that if I could figure it out, I might because I don't know how to work my DVR if I even have it. But then again, like the quality is just not that good. Like if you're taping stuff off of the TV on the VHS. I mean, I used to do it because yeah, there wasn't any I did option. It all the time. There wasn't any other option. But you know, I either will try to catch something on TV, or more often than not, like if it's for example, one of like a late night show or something, I, I'll wait to see it online. So I don't know. I, I feel a little torn because, but then again, you know, this is also a guy who is right now one of those staunch defenders of film itself. That he sees how digital projection is killing the movie industry in a way. And I don't know if, in a way, I agree, and also I don't agree. I think that subliminal, and this is a big discussion that I don't want to get into right now because we only have so much time, but. Like there is something I think that people who are seeing digital projected movies, they are missing out in a way on something that film projection can do. Like those little weird circles up in the upper right hand corner of the screen. In the industry, they're called cigarette burns. Yeah, oh! yeah, I love those. I love seeing the little scratches. Like I love seeing, I love knowing that a reel is about to end because you start to see more scratch marks. Uh, so I, in a way I agree with him, but I, but you know, what, what else are we going to do? You know, I need to see a movie, at movie theater. I'll see it any way I can. Yeah. So, all right. Good for you, Tarantino. Now go finish Hateful Eight. Um, all right. So with that said, let's get into the two minute movie mile. All right. Um, so once again, Andrew and I saw movies this week. Um, and well, Jack saw the most, so he's going to go first. I Are saw, you ready? I saw a few. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just open up my notes here. Let me just open up something. Um, 
Alright, let me just... All right, I don't have notes for If all you want to listen to us, you can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and also a new location, right Jack? Yes, uh, so before we get into the two-minute movie mile, let's tell everybody that we are now on a new platform that maybe you've heard of, and maybe you actually have, and if you've been wondering where we are on it, no, no wait is over. We are on Stitcher. Um, now this is a, a radio and podcasting service. Um, I just heard about this recently, and it seemed like uh, a good idea. So I submitted us, and we are now on Stitcher. Uh, so if you have the app, uh, or you can also check it out on the web as well. I don't have an exact link. Uh, we'll post it should, on our Facebook. Yeah, you should be. it should be easy enough to find. And every time we update the episodes on SoundCloud, it immediately updates on uh, Stitcher, as well as on iTunes. So also check us out on iTunes and subscribe to us there. So you can open up three windows and listen to us at, at yeah. all at once. <laughs> listen to the wages of cinema in full 3D surround sound. There. Yeah, how about that? Three. I'm just thinking of the, the, the guy who did the six. He, he, I don't know if I told you about this. This guy took all six Star Wars movies and put them on top of one another. So they're playing all at the same time. Jeez. It's nuts. I love it. Um, well, it the... sounds better than watching all three Transformers movies at once. Oh! All, all right. right, so let's get into the two-minute movie mile. One, two, three, go. Sicario. Um, this is the latest movie. Benicio Del Toro from... shoots people. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess you got that from the, the commercials. Uh, this is a new movie about uh, Mexican drug cartels, and specifically Emily Blunt is this SWAT officer who's... Uh, Brought in on this semi-clandestine mission led by Josh Brolin. Uh, they're going into Mexico to try to hunt down this uh, cartel leader. And um, the thing to comment about this movie is that uh, it comes from the director of this movie, Prisoners. I don't know if you've heard of that. It had it came out a couple years ago with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. That was it was a pretty intense drama. Um, but the th- but the key thing too is that. Uh, his collaborator on that movie returns to this movie, uh, Roger Deakins, as cinematographer. Uh, legendary Roger Deakins. And to me, this is among his best work in recent years. Um, there's a stretch in the movie where you're just watching uh, the characters driving through uh, the city. I think it's Juarez. And, you know, they're driving past, and Emily Blunt sees that bodies are just hanging off of, like, highway roads like it's bad you know because the drug gangs are just making things so you know volatile and you know and it's just like this long sequence is going on and you and if it didn't have that look from deacons and also this villeneuve guy you might it might be dragging but it's so suspenseful because you think oh my god any moment these people could die all of them and when it finally does pop, it's the suspense is in- incredible. Benicio del Toro, he has a great character here. Who um, I'm so glad he got to show how much how good he can act. He almost kind of turns into the Punisher in uh, in the last act of the movie. And Emily Blunt is great too. I will go see this movie again. This was a real blast. Time and really dark. I should have mentioned that. Okay. Um, so Andrew, you are next go all right Wes craven's last house on the left okay this now, has been I'm on my curious. list for a long time i've got a list of 100 horror films that i gotta see before i die and my last house on the left has been on my list for a long time 
Uh, maybe directed by Wes Craven, 1972. Yeah. A remake of The Virgin Spring. Yeah, and nowhere near as... Co- as You've seen The Virgin good. Spring? No, I just assume. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, alright. Uh, yeah, I I gotta say, I mean, I I, 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 I I know this reputation for this movie is huge. And it did not, get remade. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan. No, I'm not I a fan it's, either. I think it's scuzzy. It, it's just, it's mean. Here's the big problem. It's... It doesn't dwell too much on violence at first. There's this... Yeah. What it's about is about this young girl named Mary who... Well, she's a teen. She goes into the city and she gets kidnapped by by these criminals who uh, kill her friend and rape her. Well, not in the city. They're in the woods. Well, it starts in the city. That's not the point. Oh, I forgot about and, that. And it is pretty brutal. And they don't dwell too much on the violence at first. But then they intercut it with these cops who are trying to warn the family, and it's just done in such a cartoonish way that it's kind of insulting. The the rape and killing sequences, I remember, were pretty brutal, and the problem for me was that, all right, I get that you're making some kind of Vietnam analogy or something. They're trying trying to make a, a statement about violence, and they're trying to, like... He's saying, like, you want violence, we'll push the envelope. But in the end, that's a really short-sighted strategy. I mean, it might have worked at the time, but... uh, And... But in the long run, film has just become more violent. And now, by comparison, Last House on the Left just isn't that shocking anymore. So it loses Mm. all the impact, uh, even for the stuff they were trying to do. And it's just really not... uh, Not that compelling. Time. I'd agree. God, yeah. (sighs) <sighs> Rest in peace, Wes Craven. Rest Thanks, in Jack. pieces. All right, go. All right, uh, Electric Boogaloo: The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. Um, what do you know about Canon Films? Does it sound familiar? Canon Films directed uh, released a whole bunch of kind of low grade, kind yeah, of exploitative the a- okay. films back in the eighties. In the eighties, right? they were they were the thing when it came to Chuck Norris. <laughs> American Ninja movies, um, the Breakin' series, Breakin' and Breakin' right, Two, Breakin Electric and Boogaloo, and um, and it's funny because in the movie they talk about how both Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson became two of their kind of flagship stars, and um, and basically they were run by these two guys, uh, Golan, Gl- they're Golan Globus. Hey, they produce Tough Guys Don't Dance. They did. They did. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you remembered that. Yes. They don't really go as much into that as, as you'd like. However, they do mention the fact that actually Norman Mailer was in another Golan Globus movie, John Luke Godard's King Lear, which is. Wow. Oh, I've seen King Lear. It's such a piece of shit. Um, this movie's uh, really entertaining. It's fascinating. The way I would describe this documentary is that it's kind of like the best Netflix movie of the year. And I, I know it sounds like a weird recommendation, but like the movie's about to come out on DVD this week, and I'm sure very soon after will come to Netflix. This is the perfect movie for Netflix. It moves fast. It's snappy. It uh, has really good, funny interviews. Um, people like Elliot Gould and uh, oh, who else? There's a lot of C-list and D-list actors in this movie. Um and oh yeah, they, they and they, what I like though is that it's very honest and frank. They talk about how yeah, these guys loved movies, but they also really loved profits. But and they also kind of eventually got to their downfall because they made Superman four and Masters of the Universe and these movies which they wouldn't have made earlier in their careers. So it's a very telling tragic Time. story. 
of X's. Um, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Superman 4? Nope. <laughs> we should watch that one night. Someday, Jack. We should watch uh, Planet Man or whatever it is in that all right, ready, go. All right, another Wes Craven classic. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Wow. This is better I than like, Last House on the Left. I like The Hills Have Eyes. It's not... Is it great art? No, but it's a fun exploitation movie. Uh, for a moment, though, I did get this kind of weird flashback of Manos, The Hands of Fate. <laughs> It's a desert film shot with a lot of shots at night. Or like the Beast of Yucca Flats or something like that. Yeah, but... More manos. I guess the best way to describe it is... I know someone else has said that, but it's basically Mad Max, Last House on the Left, with uh, violence between families and and savage people. A little bit more, and it's like... Yeah, they're they're hillbillies, but is there also like a radioactive element or something? That's hinted at, but it's never really played out. Okay. Uh, it's another... Uh, a family is driving through the desert when their car breaks down, and they are besieged by a family of... Uh, uh, mutants, like cannibal yeah, people. Yeah, basically mutant people who live out in the desert and who are trying to basically stay alive. Played, And one of them is played by Michael Berryman. Right. And he is one of the most distinctive-looking people in movies of, of these kind. And I was trying to think, well, what's what Wes Craven? This film isn't too good. Last House on the Left wasn't really great. The only film of Wes Craven's I really like is is Scream. So really? what not is? Even so let me think. Nightmare on Elm Street. No. Uh, so I was trying to think, what is Wes Craven's strength? Okay. And I think his strength was concept, because okay. this is a good concept. It's sh- well shot in the de- in the desert. Uh, they, he chose great locations, yeah. and you know he worked within a budget, you know, and got the films made. So I, I, I guess you could say he he was a successful director by the standards of his time. Uh, but the concepts are are that he works with were much better than anything else out there. I think that's basically what kept him time in the spotlight. Yeah, I may be talking about a Wes Craven movie on the next podcast. So all right, just to give you a little heads up about that. Okay. So uh, I guess I'm pretty much all right. Ready, set, go. Uh, The Killing Fields. Uh, This is a movie uh, which um, is kind of historically important as it's I think the first film for an Asian uh, actor to win or an or kind of an East Asian actor to win an Oscar. Uh, And I do I have his name? Oh, his name was Hang S. Nagor. And he uh, won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for playing this guy named Dith Pran. Uh, now, this movie takes place in Cambodia in the early early mid-70s. And it follows uh, this New York Times reporter played by Sam Waterston, who goes into Cambodia to try to show that, oh, hey, things in here are really, really screwed up. Things are bad. Things are... People are dying by the thousands. There's basically this genocide, which, you know, in part is kind of fueled a little bit by some of the lies of Richard Nixon that... You know, in his administration, it's like, oh, we're doing a targeted bombing in Cambodia, blah, blah, blah. And in reality, it was just a nightmare. People, you know, and it's, uh, this movie reflects that pretty well. It's very intense. It's very moving. It has a lot of brutal violence. But, I mean, the movie's ultimately, it tries to show about the good in people. Like, that's kind of really its goal. Because ultimately, the movie's real emotional core is this uh, relationship between this reporter and his interpreter, played by uh, Pran. And um, 
and there's a really great sequence in the movie that I'd like to mention where they have to try to get, they want to try to get him out, Pran out of uh, the country, you know, because Cambodians can't leave. So they want to try to doctor a passport. And so there's this whole sequence, um, and ultimately it doesn't quite work out, but I love that they tr- they show, and John Malkovich is this other photographer, and he tries to put together, in really crude ways, just a photograph. And I love this sequence, because it shows that, you know, this kind of process, this artistic way of going about things, um, you know, it's a way to kind of conquer evil, possibly. Huh. I don't know if that's a good way to do it. Time. All right. Um, yeah. The Killing Fields. Um, oh, and written by Bruce Robinson of With Nell and I. All right. Ready and uh, go. All right. Grave of the Fireflies. Okay. Uh, or as I like to call it, the film where everybody cries. <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of the biggest Japanese fil- films in terms of bringing anima- Japanese animation to a much, to a global audience. Yeah, it's, it came out the same year as Akira. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two films basically astounded the world, gave people a much bigger taste for what we now know as anime. It's 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 a movie that what well, I and I might have mentioned this before to you, but uh, it's a movie that takes its time too in some ways. Like well, shots don't you know shots aren't rushed at times. Um, Roger Ebert I think talked about this in his review that sometimes they'll just cut to a shot of you know just scenery and it's just meant to kind of keep a pace that you know you're just watching these two people trying to survive. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of like keeping a keeping a rhythm, a very gradual rhythm, and when you get scenes of landscapes or views out the window, it's also to let you think about what happened in the scene previous, about the lines said and about yeah. what people have done. And it's just a great film uh, for anybody, because the United States and Japan were at war pretty brutally in the 1940s, World War II. Yeah. And the important thing about this film is that it really gives a face to the people who died in Japan. Yeah. Due to American it, bombings and to uh, the the deprivation that Japanese it, people suffered. It strips away the politics to try and show just on the pure personal level. And that way, I put it on par with something like uh, the Italian neorealist films, where you right. take away the politics of Italy and just show these people as people. It, there's, a, there's a song at the end... Uh, no Place Like Home that's used in a kind of touching scene, but it was also used in another Japanese film called The Burmese Harp, which was also about Japan's role in the war. Uh, that's worth noting. Time. And uh, we should also um, also briefly mention that uh, we talked about this film uh, recently in our animation show. Which right. You can listen, listen to, to the animation show episode. You won't yes. be sorry. Yes, and that is episode 26. So go check that out. We go into more depth uh, about that movie. Um, okay. Yeah. All right, Jack, you're next. All right. Again. Because who else would be next? Um, how Go! about Harvey? No. Um, all right, so now for a movie that is a little bit still dark, but a lot more funny. Um, what We Do in the Shadows. Uh, this is You invited a, me to see this, and I couldn't come. What kind yeah, of movie is this? This is, um, I would say, some reviews will say it's in the style of This is Spinal Tap. I kind of almost look at it a little bit like The Office or something you're bit you're it's about mockumentary mockumentary it's about these four vampires in new zealand and they live together uh you know you have a guy who's dainty you have a guy who's a little bit tries to be a little bit more of a badass even though he has a 
uh, an ex called the Beast, who you don't really know is his ex until I don't know if I'm spoiling something, but anyway. And then you have another one who I, I forget his character trait. And then you have a fourth one who is basically Nosferatu living in the basement, and he doesn't talk. It's just they unearth his cauldron, and he just goes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's it's like everyone else is kind of like i'm 100 years old i'm 400 years old he's 8,000 years old Jeez. and so anyway the movie kind of charts it's and i guess it's a little bit like also like like the real world you're watching these vampires and you know they have arguments about who should do the dishes and uh they haven't done the dishes in like five years or something why, why should they do dishes they're vampires um right. and they you know and what, what happened i think one of the crux one of the main things in the plot is that they bring in a new guy because like there's a guy who they invite over for dinner and they just one of them i guess decides to turn him into a vampire and uh and the problem is that he keeps telling people that he's a vampire (laughs) which you know it's it's one of those movies that again like spinal tap um it's extremely funny but you also believe these guys as people and i think that's an important thing there's a lot of good setup and payoff which i like good jokes that get set up and then later on pay off involving things like werewolves and zombies and uh, other creatures of the Time. night. Go see it. Yeah. You might say it is a sleeper. Ooh. Thanks, Bella. <laughs> oh. So, <laughs> All right. my last film, and then you've got to go on a marathon. Go. This film is not yet rated. Ooh, you finally watched it. Yeah, I had it. Watched it. Pretty good. This is a documentary about the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, and how its rating system supposedly works. Yeah, we brought this up actually a long time ago, too. If you go back to our very first sex uh, film discussion back in February, we talked about I I brought that movie up. Right, and it, and it, for, it hammered back my, uh, down my point that I brought up last time when I was talking about the movie Hysteria. Yeah, which was a film with basically no violence, uh, no nudity, yeah, uh, no foul language, and it got an R rating because it dealt with female orgasm, female orgasm, and vibrators. Yes, it's and seeing this documentary, yes, you absolutely understand why that happened. Yes, it's based, it's, and I, I, I would go into more about what they say in the film, but the thing that really just astounds me about the MPAA's rating system, it's re- is really it's it's opacity. How you it's, mm. it's not transparent at all. You don't know no. who the people are who rate the film. You, you don't, don't know. Yeah. Who, you don't know who is on appeals. You barely get to argue. There, you can't cite precedent in other films, and they have all the power in determining a rating, which then determines how. To a certain extent, how successful a film can be. I mean, NC-17 films are not widely screened. They are not still. Yeah. I mean, and I, most of the films that get NC-17 ratings right now are ones that g- deal with gay sexuality. Yeah, gay sexuality, homosexuality or very, is the or better very, word. Or very upfront sexuality involving themes like sex addiction, like shame. But um, the other thing about this movie too, I wanted to point out is that there is a very slight. Michael Moore quality too because the guy Kirby Dick who directed the movie he he one of the things he does in the movie is try to find out who these people he's are. conducting an investigation of the people who are uh, in this ratings board and kind of makes you a little angry but it really c- kind of makes Time. you want to do something yeah you know what uh, as a, a, a as a coda to that what if what if the Sony hack can happen with the MPAA do you have a plan? No. Let's talk about your next film. All right. <laughs> All right, then. Go, let's go.
Go. Uh, Whirlpool. Um, this is a, uh, a film noir. A film noir, I say. Film noir. Um, this comes from, <laughs> thanks, John Kennedy. Uh, this comes from director Otto Preminger. Uh, a little while back, I brought up a movie called Laura, and this kind of has the same team of Otto Preminger and uh, Gene Tierney. Uh, this movie involves actually something you might be kind of intrigued by. It's a guy. It's about this woman who uh, is a little bit of a kleptomaniac. She's ha- she's pretty well off with her husband. Oh, kleptomaniacs make me nervous. Yeah, they well, make me think of me. <laughs> okay, well. See if this movie isn't of your own. So this woman gets kind of caught uh, stealing something from a store. Uh, it's like just a pin. But this other guy tries, you know, gets her off of, of the crime. But then she, you know, he kind of blackmails her in a way to try to start seeing her as, as, a, as, as a therapist. And he basically hypnotizes her into murder. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a lot of hypnotism in this movie. Uh, there's a lot of... Some of it, you know, you have to kind of buy into in a way because this yeah, is 1949 it's like, it's like spellbound where yeah. where the science doesn't really hold up anymore yeah but the upside is that the, the performances are really strong uh i mentioned gene tierney and she's the lead character and i actually felt a lot of sympathy for her even though you know she's kind of set up a little bit not even a femme fatale but she's a little bit of a tragic figure and uh jose ferrer I'm not sure it's related to Miguel Ferrer or not. Mel Ferrer, I don't know. Mel Ferrer, um, but he plays the uh, the guy who's the villain, and he's just so slimy. He's just so uh, interesting to watch. Um, you know, there's a lot of good. There's some plot holes in the movie, so it's not uh, it's not among the best film noirs ever. But if you like film noir, you should see it. Um, you know, like I said, Gene Tierney gives the character credibility and makes her fragile and torn and frayed. Go see Time. It. All right. All right. Next. Wipeout. Well, hold on. Let me let me move my uh, browser just a little bit here. I want to just have my notes. Okay. All right. Go. Uh, Whisper of the Heart. This is a uh, a Studio Ghibli movie that people kind of tend to forget because it's one of their few movies that is pretty much uh, not a fantasy or epic or type of movie at all. It's set in the real world. Um, it's You might almost think it's a minor movie, but it's actually amazing in a lot of small ways. It's about this uh, young girl who's in middle school, and she loves reading. She loves fairy tales. She loves oh, I think digging into books. And, um, and she keeps on going to the library and finding that like the same books have been checked out by the same guy. Bookstalker. Yeah, and then you know, and she thinks that maybe this guy's like an old gentlemanly type, but no, she's just like somebody who's around her age and makes violins. Um, and uh, she discovers that he's also the grandson of this guy who runs an antique shop, and he has like this statue of a cat, who I think ends up later turning up in like the Cat Returns or something, which I've seen, and I wish I remembered. That's but on the my point list is, too. But the point is about this movie and that why I love it is that it really it charts. Uh, the struggle of the creative process in the aspect of what happens when you are so burning with a desire to be creative and to do something like being a writer and you don't think you're good enough. You combust. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's an element of that. You go down in flames. There's deep stuff in this movie. It's wonderful because, you know, and there are a lot of bright visuals and things like that, uh, but it's about a real-world problem 
it has like a tiny bit of fantasy in the sense that she we do see her story that she's writing, which is called Whisper the Heart, and Carrie always does the voice of the cat. And he does the voice of the cat in the movie. It, the cat returns. There you go. I guess there must be a t- well, no, there. Like, this movie came first, and then they made the cat return. Oh, based and one on last that, weird that thing. Character. There's a country song in the movie, which is weird, but Time. whatever. <sighs> uh, is your phone now gonna play every time it <laughs> does that? It's just a thing. All right, all right. So let's Don't let's judge move on. Me. I have a I have a few more movies to go. One, two, three, go. Koyaniskatsi. All right, Koyaniskatsi. I know this from the soundtrack by Philip Glass. So you what the soundtrack? What is the ens- essence of this film? What is this film about? Um, I, it's basically like the long... world is the world is breaking down. Like basically, the, well, the, I the... knew that already. But what does this film help me with? Um, well, the Earth is basically in flux and constant movement, and that's the story. I know it sounds like a weird thing, but basically, the movie starts off. It shows a little bit of like the desert and some mountains. But then it goes, most of the movie takes place in cities. And you see things like, uh, I don't know, like a ba- buildings that, have been, that are ready to be demolished completely tumble to the ground. And that's actually put to, I believe it's called Pruitt Igo. Maybe. I don't know if you know that song. That's the one that's like, bop, 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 bop. There's a lot of super fast motion in this movie. I think a lot, what this movie is about is that the world is moving so fast. And this is in like the early '80s too, so this is already the, mo- the you know we we can't keep up with the world. You know what what is there in the cities but technology? We need energies to survive, and cities have to provide energy. And this is one of the main thrusts of the film, since people in cities feed off of that energy. So a lot, of, so it's not just that. Oh, all right, we're watching people moving really in fast motion. That's kind of the point. That's sort of like. Trying to create, you know, a story out of visuals, which, you know, that's something that uh, the collaborator on this movie, Ron Freak, would do uh, with Baraka, uh, which I don't know if you've heard of that. I've movie. heard of it. That's more set in like the jungle world a little bit, if I remember correctly. That's a movie I watch a lot of times, stoned. Um, but plays with this movie. Also, it's a marriage of the visuals and Philip Glass music. It doesn't work without the Philip Glass music. That is just. You know, what can you say? I think that's one of the great scores ever written for a movie. Yeah. Time. (sighs) I love Philip Glass's film work. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever listened to the soundtrack for the hours? You've told me about it. You brought it up actually before Yeah, well, have you listened to it? I, you know, I mean, not by itself, but I've seen the hours and I know the Philip Glass music. Give it a listen sometime. You won't be sorry. All right. All right, so a couple more of them. All right, now this is a different kind of music movie, which you're probably not going to want to hear about, but I'll talk about it anyway. I'll brace myself. All Go. Right. Let There Be Rock, uh, ACDC. All right, yeah, you I find ACDC monotonous. Here's the thing about this movie, though. I would say that this is a good ACDC movie for people who are either kind of ho-hum or you know aren't even big fans because... Um, the cool thing about this movie is, first of all, now it takes place uh, in ni- it's set in 1980, or it came out then, and uh, so in a way, this is like the kids are all right, you know, the Who documentary, which is all about the Who up until Keith Moon's death. This is a uh, an AC/DC movie about Bon Scott, in a way. Um, he was the lead singer throughout the 70s, and then he died from drinking, and then they brought in Brian Johnson, and that's when he got the Back in Black album and all the other albums. And so, I mean, Brian Johnson's been their lead singer longer, but this period with Bon Scott was incredible. 
And this concert document movie, it's part documentary. Um, at first, I was a little worried a couple of times it was going to turn into The Song Remains the Same, which has really ridiculous and crazy set pieces. Um, but this movie is more just about watching ACDC on stage, and they, they kick ass with a lot of their songs. It helps that a number of them aren't the same overplayed songs that you've heard a million times. Uh, I mean, it's hard to not get energized when they play rocker or uh, Let There Be Rock, or all the other rock songs. Um, Alright, yeah, but the point is that the energy that they have on stage and their presence is just... They're on fire in this movie. And the do- and the, and the movie's not shot in a w- any way that's really uh, stylistically obnoxious. Would or... you say it's a portrayal of ACDC at the height of their popularity? At the height of their powers, I don't know. I think Back in Black was when they got to their most popular. This is right before that. This is when they were... Their creative tor- peak. They were touring on Highway to Hell album. And, um... Time! All right. There you go. All right, and I have one more movie. All right, last one. All right. Go. Well, since you brought up Grave of the Fireflies, I rewatched uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And I have a few more words to say about this movie because... Uh, uh, this is just one of the most gorgeous films. And stop that... motion is kind of underappreciated, not just for the quality of its films, but for the amount of effort it, that Pe- goes into a yeah. stop motion animated film. As I mentioned in our animation show, it takes a week to animate a minute. Yeah. And that's it working at full throttle. Like, And that's if nothing goes wrong, because things like could go wrong on these sets. Like, And it's not like with animation, all right, if you draw the wrong line, you can quickly erase it, and that's it. You know, if you make like the wrong movement, you have to kind of go back and fix it all over again. That you might have to be, keep track of it, and that might movement. be a full day's work or something. Um, you know, again, and the, des- the design work is just uh, so marvelous. You feel like you're actually there. It's not like you're watching little puppets on some stage. You're actually seeing a fully realized world, not not unlike when you have other great Tim Burton movies. So. Yeah, because you have to build each of those sets. You have to build each of those sets, and you have to have cameras that can adequate, adequately make these pe- these puppets look like just people, in a way. Um, I, I find it's just a movie that's really easy to watch. It's just like, I've, I've watched this movie so many times that I kind of, I can kind of quote it like by heart, in a way. Um, which is very endearing if you have a wife who also... That's like her favorite movie, uh, which I think that's Corey's favorite movie. Um, yeah, I mean it's uh, and I I'm all, I mentioned the music briefly in our show, and I think that's similarly in a way like Koyan Scotty. It's like you can't imagine this movie without Danny Elfman's music. Like all the songs drive the story, but also even the themes do, and you hear a lot of brilliant interweaving that is just incredible. Time. Uh. So that was the two-minute movie mile. If you have any, uh, if you have any viewing experience with these films, then let us know yeah. if we're wrong or yeah. if we're totally right. Yeah, or what you uh, tell me if my opinion of Wes Craven is stupid. Yeah, tell if tell Andrew if he knows where he can stick it. Yeah, tell me that. <laughs> I don't know what. Uh, that's that's an old catchphrase. I don't even, that's not even a catchphrase. It's just a thing. So, uh, so anyway, when we come back, we're gonna do the list, and we're we, talking about two epics from the early '80s. Two epics, uh, big Oscar winners too. So, all right, stay tuned. Oh, brother, you're something. You put me in a spin. 
You aren't comprehending the position that you're in. It's hopeless. You're finished. You haven't got a prayer. Cause I'm Mr. Oogie Boogie, and you ain't going nowhere. Ha, 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 ha.